do at the beginning of each month. And then we're also celebrating baptism directly following communion. We're going to all get up and just scurry outside to our uh, very incredibly designed baptismal font out there. It's also a horse trough I got at Tractor Supply, so uh, double duty. Um, so uh, we're going to do that. That's really fun. We're excited about that. And all of those things are, are pictures of what takes place in the life of the church. And, you know, interestingly enough, we're going to be looking this morning at some of the movements that took place in the life of the early church and what defined them and, and what kind of moved them forward and how these, these early believers saw the world. And they celebrated the same things that we're celebrating, separated by thousands of years, yet knit together with the same movements of Christ. It's, it's a pretty incredible picture. So for those of you that have been here for a while or been with us for some time, we have been kind of moving and have moved through the book of Acts. We spent two years there, um, every week pretty much looking at a piece of text, and we carved our way through the entire book. And I got to the end in September after two years and, and all of these messages and all this stuff, and I just thought to myself, there are some bigger themes at play that I want to revisit before we just sort of close it all out, before we just sort of say, well, that was great, we're glad we did it, let's do something else. I wanted to revisit some larger lessons that aren't just, just elevated in Acts, but are sort of elevated through all of Scripture. And so we're using other texts, but we're using Acts as a backbone to kind of push us in that direction. And a few weeks ago, we explored the first one, which is this, as followers of Jesus, we exist as a sent people. So one of the largest lessons out of the book of Acts is that we exist to be sent into the world. And we talked about what that meant, that as a church, we don't exist for the maintenance and sort of propagation of ourselves. We don't exist to hold a series of programs so that we can all feel better about ourselves, to come here and gather here and let our Christian life sit here, exist here, and stay here until we come again next week. But that we exist to be sent by the Holy Spirit into the cracks and crevices of culture where we have the joy of being obedient to the Lord to tell the world about the gospel that has changed our lives. Right? And in Acts, they sort of talk about bearing witness to the gospel. That we become testifiers of what God has done in us. And so we exist to be sent. If the church exists to not be out there, then we're missing our entire purpose and actually cease to become the church. The second lesson a couple weeks ago we talked about uh, was the fact that we have been promised as followers of Christ, we've been promised and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we are not sent into the world as lone rangers to try and figure this thing out, but that Jesus himself tells the disciples that when he is no longer with them physically, right, he will be sending, or the Father will be sending the Holy Spirit, a counselor that not only will be with them, but will be in them, will dwell in them. That the Holy Spirit as followers of Christ, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, is indwelling. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life. And we talked about how the fact that we is, have been given this incredible promise and this gift of the Holy Spirit, and it leads the church in its mission on the world. And it guides us and moves us forward. And we sort of explored that movement and talked about how the gift of the Holy Spirit is for those who have a personal love relationship with Jesus. And it is the single greatest gift that anyone has ever been given, that God gives himself, his presence, that literally Emmanuel, God with us, God indwelling with us, is a sort of the ultimate of, uh, depth of promise of God's kind of being with us, right? The Holy Spirit. We talked about that. Well, last week we started Lesson 3, and Lesson 3's got a, a few parts to it, as I typically figure out a way to make things longer. We've got Lesson 3 has got three parts, right? Because I tried to tackle the whole thing, but it's just too much. And Lesson 3 is this, that as followers of Jesus, we are called to a radically altered worldview. 
And if anything we see in Acts, this new church, these new followers of Christ, they are seeing the world differently than everyone else. They are actually seeing the world the way that Jesus saw the world. That as they follow Christ, their worldview is shaped by the God that they follow. And last week we explored how that worldview changes the way that we see people. And we use an example out of Acts where Peter and John were going back into the temple. Uh, Now that Jesus has been resurrected and has ascended into heaven, they were doing what they knew to do, which was to do the things that Jesus would have done. So they went to the temple to teach during one of the times of prayer. And we talked about the, the crippled person, the beggar that they came across, and how they looked at this man in the eyes and how they treated him and said, Look, silver or gold we don't have, but we give you a give in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then we explored John 5 and talked about how just how differently Jesus saw people with heartbeats, and he didn't see them with their kind of socioeconomic barriers or, or, you know, all those sort of things that we tend to see in people, but he saw people with love and with compassion. And as followers of Christ, we are called to see people with love and compassion, not with our sort of super judgy eyes, you know, or the things that we tend to kind of place upon people. The second part of that worldview, though, that we're going to explore today is that following Jesus And that radical kind of altered worldview changes the way that we see things. And when I talk about things, what I'm talking about is that stuff in our life, right? Things, resources, money, materialism, ideas, those those things that we gravitate and tend to call our own. And following Jesus gives us this radically altered worldview of how I see stuff. And we learned this in Acts 2 and Acts 4 because we see this glimpse of the early church doing life together. All right. Now we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 6, but I just want to give you the sort of correlating text to how we're going to get to Matthew 6 uh, via Acts. Now Acts, the church is learning how to do life together, right? Remember, there was no generational Christianity. There was no grandmother that taught you how to do this or your dad taught you how to do this. You were a follower of Christ and you were a first generation Christian. And there were very, very few of you. The church was growing at a rapid rate, but it had just started. When the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit shows up, as we looked at a few weeks ago, on that single day, 3,000 people were added to the, the ranks of the believers. But they were all in town for the Pentecost celebration. And so because it was a pilgrimage feast, most of those people returned to their homes. And so what was left in Jerusalem was a scattering of probably 500 or less believers. In a city that probably held about 100 to 200,000 people, there was 500 or less believers. Like a quarter of 1% of the population was a follower of Christ. And the church's movement was organic. It was out of necessity. Filled with the Holy Spirit, they did what they knew to do, which is to gather together and begin to live life organically. And Acts 2 and Acts 4 give us this incredible glimpse into how the church was living. And I want to read them to you. They're real short. I'm going to read them to you because I want you to see the background of what we're talking about. So in Acts 2, we get this picture of the early church. It says in 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching of the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and the wonders and the miraculous signs that were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of the people. And the Lord added to the number those who were being saved. We jump ahead to Acts 4. We see another picture. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that they had any possessions of their own. But they shared everything they had. 
And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. And much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those that owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. So what we're beginning to see in the life of these followers of Jesus is a radically altered worldview in how they see the world, how they see people, and as we see here, how they see things. Did you hear the common thread in those two different descriptions of how the church was doing life? In both of those accounts, there was a a description of what they did with their stuff, right? In Acts 2, they talked about how they sold their possessions and gave to anyone that had need. In Acts 4, he talks about how any, from time to time, someone that had a house or had land would bring that and they would sell it and they would bring the money to the, the apostles' feet and they would give to anyone that had need. What we're beginning to see is that people had a radically altered worldview of their stuff when they gave their life to Jesus. So when I surrendered my life to Christ, my idea of stuff and my worldview of things changed. Because this is a culture that was very much tied to things. Not that, all, not that different from our culture today. If you had land in your family, you passed it down generation to generation to generation to generation. It was status. It was more than just land. It showed that you were worth something, and it gave that to your children and to their children's children. Yet we see people in Acts 4 that had land that would just go and sell it, to take the money and lay it at the apostles' feet and say, hey, if anybody has a need, use this. That's not normal, right? The normal culture doesn't do that. Normal culture accumulates those things, uses them as the status symbol that they are, right? We're seeing something incredibly different happening in Acts. Now, where does this come from? Well, as all of our lessons do, they don't just come from Acts. They come from the sort of breadth of Scripture. But what we're going to look at is how Jesus himself talked about how our worldview of things should change. And we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 6. So if you've got it, I want you to go ahead and and turn there. And while you're turning there, let me give you just a little reminder, background. Matthew 6 is actually in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is a, uh, well, it's a pretty misnamed sort of piece of text because it wasn't actually really that at all. Uh, In Matthew 5, Jesus sees the crowds. Everywhere he went, remember, crowds gathered and just the multitudes and huge numbers. And so Jesus sees crowds coming and they're always bringing the sick and the broken and the hurting because they want to bring them in the vicinity of Jesus. And Jesus sees these crowds that are coming and as he does occasionally, he withdraws and he goes up on the side of this mountain and Matthew 5, 1 and 2 and there kind of tell us that the disciples followed him and they sat down with him and he began to teach them. So the Sermon on the Mount actually is Jesus teaching his group of 12-ish, maybe a few extras, just about what life that followed him looks like. But what eventually happens is this giant crowd makes its way up the mountain and sort of a, a sermon breaks out. So the Sermon on the Mount actually was just a small group of people that Jesus was instructing about life that followed him when all of a sudden this crowd broke out. And so here he is, probably hundreds of people gathered on the side of this mountain, and he's talking to them about a life that follows him, how we see the world and how we live. And he talks about divorce, and he talks about money, and he talks about giving, and he talks about murder. He talks about all these things that are sort of different when you give your life to following the kingdom of God. Well, Matthew 6 is where we're going to be, and he's talking about where our heart is and where our treasures are and where our resources are and how it 
matters. So if you've got it, I want you to go ahead and turn there, and then we're going to pray, and we'll kind of open it up and look at some realities see and hear um, together. So let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing uh, soul and spirit, joint and marrow. God, you tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that your word is your word. And so, God, we don't take it lightly. We believe that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. God, this is not some guidebook for our life. It is your very breath poured out on its pages. God, we pray that you would teach our hearts with it. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Whatever that is, whatever he needs to instruct your heart on, just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you, even if you don't know them. We do this every single week because we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Even if you've never met them, just pray that the Lord would move in their heart, that he would just do something in them. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would do all the things that you promised to do. Lord, some of these things are hard to hear. Some of these things we want to ignore. But the truth is, God, you are amazing. And it is all for your glory. And so, God, we ask that you would teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 6, uh, verse 19, middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is instructing this now gathering large group, growing by the moment. He's talking about hearts and treasures and stuff and things. And the reason we're looking at this is because it's going to inform Acts 2 and 4. It's going to be the backbone for why the followers of Christ are beginning to see the world around them and things and people differently. This is what Jesus says. He says, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The eyes of the lamp to the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is typically where everyone wants to check out because they think my next move is going to be saying, now give all your money to the church, right? So uh, not the case. We don't want a single nickel. Um, so, but what we do want is for us to think differently about the tension in our life. So there is a tension in our life. In every single one of our lives, including my life, especially in my life, there is a tension. And most of us won't name that tension because we don't like to name that tension because we want to believe that that tension doesn't exist. We want to believe it exists only in people that have more resources than we do, but we don't like to name that tension in our own life. And the tension in our life is this, that we have this conflict in our lives between God and our stuff, right? That is a real tension. We have a tension between the God that I love and serve and am called to follow and the stuff, the things that I have. Now, here's what you're saying. Well, I don't really have that. I don't really desire things or resources or, or even money or whatever. The truth is, what that just means is you don't desire certain things, right? 
There are all things that we desire and we push for and we long for. For some of us, it is actually physical resources. I want money. I need an IRA, a bank account. I need a retirement account. I need to be a certain number. For other of us, it's things. I need electronics. I need, you know, a bigger TV. I need an iPhone 7. I need whatever. For some of us, it's clothing. It's I want these shoes, these belts. I don't know if those are a big deal or not, but maybe they are. Belts, boots, pants, whatever, right? For some of us, it's a new car or an old car or just a car. Some of us, it's a better car or another house or this house or a piece of land or whatever it is. We have things that are in constant tension with the Lord. And the tension is this, right? Who is our ruler? Our stuff, our things, our pursuit, our desire for those things, or is it God? And this is what Jesus is essentially addressing. He's saying that we have to be at a place where we don't store up things for ourselves. Now, most of us are saying, man, I'm not storing up anything. I barely, right, have enough to even call my stuff. But there's a few realities that I want us to see here that I think we need to name to change the way that we think about our stuff and even about our God. But first we have to understand that there is a constant tension. We somehow think that God is out to get our things. We have this misconception that God wants my stuff, my money, my whatever. And we are petrified that he's going to take it all from us and we are going to be left without anything. And so we make deals with God. We give a little extra here. We feel bad for the guy in the corner, so we give him a couple of dollars so that we kind of uh, placate that little kind of bad feeling in our hearts. Or when, you know, Christmas comes around, we give a little bit extra. And we play these games with God, acting like we're giving of our stuff, but really we're just trying to keep God from taking it all because we don't want to be bad stewards. And we play these games with God, and we live in the middle of this tension, but we always are unsatisfied. There's a couple of realities that I really want you to see in this text, right? And the first reality is this. We all desire things. We desire stuff, right? Now, most of us would say, well, that's not me. But the truth is, it is you. Every single one of us desires things, right? We want always more than we have. As much as you may try and tell yourself you are content, we are never content, The Bible tells us to live content, and most of us have redefined that so that we're somewhat okay, but we would always want more. We have told the Lord that we would be the world's greatest wealthy person. I would give money away, right? You remember the Seinfeld episode where George Costanza was going to be a philanthropist? And he was like, I would be the best philanthropist ever. I would give things away and people would owe me big time, right? God, I would be the best because I would give, man. We cut these deals with God, but we are always in pursuit of things. And that pursuit leads us to a cycle. Our cycle begins like this. We want stuff. We want things. Our culture is driven by it. Turn on the TV. Every commercial we see is playing into your desire to want a better life. Especially just watch a commercial around the holidays. How joyful those moments are when people are giving them Selves and their wives and husbands and spouses or whatever, a new Lexus, right? Life is amazing. It's got a big bow on it, fire, kids are happily playing, no one's poked in the eye or anything, right? <laughs> Commercials are playing into our desire for something. I, I could, I just, I just have that. So we have this desire for things. Now most of you say, I don't really have it, but the truth is we do. We want newer things, right? We're, even in our family, we're deeply driven by that. We just need a a car that'll do this, or a house that'll do this, or a thing that'll do this, or just a little bit more margin here with our resources so we're not always this. We always are in desiring 
of more things. And it's not necessarily like most of us would look at our life and say, oh, I want frivolous things. It's just we desire things. That desire for things leads us to try and accumulate things. It leads us to try and acquire them and then accumulate them, meaning I want to get them and I want to hang on to them. So we are driven by our desire, we're driven by our attempt to acquire, and we're driven by our attempt to accumulate those things. So we do what it takes to try and acquire them, right? We, we try and save money. We work an extra job. During the holidays, we wake up at 4 a.m. on the day after Thanksgiving to go get a better deal to acquire those things so that we can have a happy Christmas or a happy holiday, right? We're driven by our desire to want to acquire and then to accumulate those things. I mean, think about how we live as a Western culture, right? We live, I mean, even if you think you have nothing, you have more than pretty much 98% of the entire world's population. We have houses that have garages to hold the things that don't fit in our houses, right? We have attics to hold the things that don't fit in our, gara- our, our garages. We have storage units on every corner of the city to hold the things that don't fit in our houses, that don't fit in our garages, don't fit in our attics. We accumulate things. And that accumulation leads us to a love of our things. I mean, you think don't love your stuff, try going one week without your phone. One week without it. Try going one week with an old school 19-inch TV with rabbit ears in your house. If your family's in like mine, they would literally die. <laughs> they would all just fall over dead. Try that. You think you don't love your things? It's not just about the small things. It's about the bigger things, the accumulation of pursuit of wealth so that I can retire, so that my kids can have this. We are constantly in this desiring, this acquiring, this accumulation, and this loving of stuff. It's a cycle, and it is a reality for every single one of us. It's what Jesus is talking about in the first part of Matthew 6, 19. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys. It's the cycle, right? I desire stuff, and I will do what it takes to acquire that stuff, to accumulate that stuff, and then I fall in love with that stuff. And as much as I don't think I do, I do. We do it with everything. Brandon and I were talking this morning. We do it with books. We do it with even the smallest things. That is a reality. There also is a second reality at play, and that is this, that God desires to be the most important thing in your life. Start with Exodus, where God gives the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, literally, you shall have no other gods before me. Not talking about physical other gods, but those idols, those things that take the place of where God should be. And oftentimes in our life, our pursuit of stuff and things takes the place of where God should be. God, I will be happy if I can just get this edge here. This career, this job, this relationship, this thing. Then I'll be content, then it will be okay. We tell ourselves that. If I can just make another couple thousand a year, right? Or if I can just be married, if I could just find that person, if I could just do this, then we could have a little breathing room. Jesus actually explains it this way when he's talking to the Pharisees, talking to the leaders of the law. What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, right? That God desires to be the most important thing in your life. So if you take that first reality, that we have a deep desire for things, 
the kind of acquiring and the accumulation and love of those things, and you put it with a second reality, which is God desires to be the most important thing in your life, you will see the tension immediately. The tension is that God desires to be the most important, and we are in pursuing of things that are taking his place. Now, none of us would say that out loud. I would never say that my car takes the place of my God, right? But you see what Jesus is saying is that when we store up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, when we do those things, we are placing our heart there and where our heart or our treasure there and where our treasure is, there our heart is. So our heart is among our pursuit of things, our accumulation of things, our love for things. And where our heart is, is what gives us away. God desires to be the only thing that matters in your life first and foremost. To be your treasure, if you will. And where your treasure is, there your heart is. So we've got these two realities that are at deep tension in our life. Our desire for stuff. Some of us will exchange that word because you don't like the way I'm saying it. You'll say comfort, whatever it is for you. Right? And God's call to be the most important thing in our life. And they are always attention and we live in moments where we can kind of settle ourselves out but they are constantly at battle the third reality that i want you to see comes towards the end of 24 and it's how this tension begins to really take place and how we're going to have to learn to relieve it this is what he says no one can serve two masters either he will love one or hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve both god and then Jesus just flat out names it and says, and money. But also what we're talking about there is stuff, things that we store up. So he says, listen, do you want me to say it plainly? Here's the tension that's named. You can't love both. As followers of Christ, you can't love both. Because one of two things will happen. One, you will love the other, love one and hate the other. Or two, you will love one and begin to despise the other. That's a big, strong word, right? I mean, would you ever in your life said you begin to despise God? Well, most of us would never use that term, but what Jesus is saying is that when we place our heart and and put it in a place where only God should be, we begin to develop a hatred or a fear or an anxiety that God is trying to rob us of where our heart is. And our lives will be in a constant place of of restlessness. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're in a place of restlessness when it comes to your financial life or just your life in general or the anxieties of the oil and gas movement or the anxiety of a job you may not have or looking for a job or the anxieties of a car that doesn't run right or a house that's kind of falling apart or no place to live at all or maybe you're living in the middle of that, what's happening is you have misplaced your heart. The Bible just names it. You have misplaced your heart, and you're beginning to despise, right, the promise that God has for you. And that's a really strong words. But it doesn't make them untrue. So we have these realities, right? Like, I desire stuff, and that leads me into a deep cycle of accumulation and love, acquisition. But God desires to be the most important thing in my life, and I've got this tension And the reality in that tension is I can't do them both. You know, a lot of us would love to believe we can do both. But all through Scripture, God says, both is an impossibility. You either love me with everything that you have, right? Or you love life with everything that it has. But they don't coexist. 
And this is the fear for most of us, right? The fear for most of us is that somehow when I say I love the Lord with everything that I have, he is going to rob me of everything that I want. It's just our fear. The problem in that is it's a broken way of thinking. And I've talked about this about a hundred thousand times. I'm going to say it again. The way to extinguish that tension, the way to relieve that tension is to come to the understanding of this one simple truth, okay? That everything I have and everything I am belongs to Jesus. So that single truth, if you begin to really believe it, that everything that I have and everything I am belongs to Jesus, then no longer is it mine to gravitate and to hoard onto and to try and get fearful of if I lose it. But it all belongs to the Lord, and I trust the Lord. So if all of my stuff, my things, my wife, my family, my cars, my bank accounts, my house, my things, belongs to Jesus, and I trust Jesus explicitly, he is the number one thing in my life, then this stuff is no longer mine, it's his, and he has given me the joy of overseeing it, giving it away, and engaging with it. I become a steward of these things. They are not mine to decide how I use them. They are the Lord's, and they are mine to obediently and joyfully use and disperse. And this is what's happening in Acts. In Acts 2 and 4, people are taking their things their things that they once believed belonged to them and the generations of their families. And they are saying, these things, Lord, are yours. And there are people in our community that have nothing. And so I want to take what's yours and I want to exchange it so that people have what they need because this is yours anyway. And Acts 2 says they took their belongings and they sold some of them so that there was no needy person among them. Acts 4 says that periodically as people had houses or land, they would sell them and they would bring the money and the community engaged in life and there was no needy person among them. Those passages are petrifying to us, right? Because is God going to call me to sell my house and give all my money away? It's the wrong question to ask. It's a fearful question. The right question is, God, how can I serve you with everything you've blessed me with? You've blessed me with a house and probably two cars for our family. How can I serve you? How can we open up our home and our neighborhood and invite the world to come in? How can we use the things that you've blessed us with to engage the world, to love people well? It doesn't mean you have to sell it. Maybe you do. But what it does mean is that you change your way of thinking about it. That my stuff and my life belong to the Lord. See, as followers of Christ, we are called to a radically altered worldview. And that worldview changes how we see our things. And things in general. And most of us are petrified of living there. And the Lord is not going to let us live in peaceful contentment until He gets the right place in our lives. As long as you are fighting the tension in your life by putting things in the place that only the Lord should be, you will live in a constant state of restlessness. It's just what Scripture says. So when Jesus looks at this group of people and he says, you cannot have two 
masters. He is literally speaking to you and me. Following Christ should radically change the way that we see people and the way that we see our things, and next week, the way that we even see our own lives. Now, of course, the key to all this is what changes in my life when I walk out of these doors, right? These are all things that we say, man, you know, that's, that's hard, but I, it's good. I'm glad I heard it. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, where are we going to eat? Like, what's happening next? And then we fall back into Monday to the exact same trap. How come the bills on my desk are this high, right? And how come these things aren't working? And how come I have no joy and no peace? And how come I'm petrified still? Because we're allowing those things to take the place that only God should have. And that's where our treasure is. And where our treasure is there, our heart is. So where is your treasure? Is it in the truth that you believe that your life and your things belong to the Lord? Or is it in your treasure clinging to everything that you have to try and make these things work? We're called to a radically altered worldview. It changes everything. And it begins with the way that Christ loved us. Jesus loved you and I in a way that was so radically different, that wasn't merit-based, right? That wasn't, hey, do this for me and I will show you my love. He loved us so deeply in the middle of our sin that he gave his life for us. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that while we were still deeply sinful, Jesus loved us enough, demonstrated his love for us, and gave his life for us. We're not used to love like that. We're used to earning love. But Jesus demonstrated this radically altered worldview by how he loved us. And then he calls followers of Christ to live that way. And the table that we celebrate with communion is really that powerful picture of radically altered life. It is a picture of Jesus' love demonstrated for us, poured out for us, laid out for us, in a non-merit, non-earning kind of based way. In a way that says, you did nothing to deserve my grace, nothing to deserve my love, but I loved you first. And I gave my life as a sacrifice, as an offering for you. Jesus changed everything. He literally turned the world upside down with how he lived. And by sacrificing his life, he gave you and I, you and I, the opportunity and entry point to eternal life in heaven and abundant life here on earth. And this table is what we celebrate. We don't celebrate this as some habitual kind of thing the church does, but as a single movement of God's redemptive grace. And we don't take it lightly. And that very night that Jesus would be betrayed, the night that all of his friends would take off, the night that he would be handed over to an angry mob, he sat with his disciples, and after washing their feet, he prayed with them. And he gathered them, and he took this loaf of bread. And even though they didn't fully understand, he took this loaf of bread, and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant. That every time we take this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. He gave us this as a reminder and as a symbol and as a movement to unite the church over generations to his own love and grace, to his own radically altered way of love. And this morning, this table is a picture of that. We don't take communion by any other means and intention. It's a simple, fancy word for saying as you come up or in the back, you take a piece of bread and you dip it in the cup and, and you can eat it. This table is not a denominational table. It's open to every single person who professes faith in Jesus Christ. 
We don't take it lightly. It's something that we take as a part of our privilege to worship a God that has given his life for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this table that it is not merely a table of elements or bread or wine. It is literally your life poured out for us. Demonstrated in these simple, normal things. It is a picture of a life that was sacrificed. A picture of a life that changes the way that we see the world. It's a picture of a life that loved before we'd even know what love meant. It's a picture of a life that loves us even when we make the world's greatest mistakes. Even in our fears and even in our failures and even in our shortcomings, God, this table is a picture of grace that says we don't have to right the ship. We just come broken before you. So Lord, we pray that as we celebrate this, as we take this, that we would contemplate our own brokenness in our hearts and that we'd be grateful for your forgiveness and grace. And Lord, that if those of us in here that are tied up in this struggle, this tension between the world, our stuff, our things, and you, God, that we have given the place that only you deserve, we have given that to something else. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a pursuit of things. Sometimes it's stuff. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's anxiety. God, we, we ask that right now you would begin to exchange those. That you would take your rightful place as the Lord of our lives. And God, not our ideology on politics or on wealth. God, or even on our fears or not fears of relationships. But that God, you would take the right place in our life. So Lord, we thank you for this table and what it means as part of our expression of worship. We ask this in Jesus.